Bitcoin fails as a money because of its naive monetary policy. Many people think government printing too much is evil, so a fixed money supply must be good. The reality? A money that cannot expand would crush the economy and put us all in poverty. Here's why and how to fix it. This one's going to be fun. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I hope everyone had an awesome weekend. Do not forget to check out. Uh, if you did not know, I was uh, got to hang out with Dave Smith on part of the problem, and we finally did. He finally did a Bitcoin episode. Uh, and you know, got to, got to sit down and like really talk to talk about like why I think Bitcoin is so important and that he should not be ignoring it. I mean, it's a it's a thousand hour topic, and me and him actually like kind of talked about this a little bit. So there's no way to cover the whole thing. And there was so, so much stuff that I did not get to cover. But hopefully, and, and it sounds like we'll probably be doing it again. I kind of want to hang out with him and Robbie at some point uh, soon, hopefully. But um, yeah, I had an absolute blast. And I might be putting it on this feed uh, pretty soon, maybe even this week. Uh, I wanted to uh, hit him up about that. But if not, or if you can't wait, uh, check out Part of the Problem podcast with Dave Smith. Today, however, you know, there have been some pretty great tweet threads on the economics of Bitcoin, uh, and at least something that I would consider very useful perspectives on Bitcoin through the lens of the mainstream economic fallacies. And I actually think these are really educational. If you break them down to their core ideas, um, even though it's you know, it's Twitter, so it's more fun to just say, oh, this is stupid and, you know, make a jab or something like that. I think it's actually really useful to break these things down. And this thread specifically that we're going to hit today is from real Natasha Che on Twitter. She apparently has a PhD in macroeconomics, which in my opinion is really, really where this starts going off the rails. Uh, nothing against Tasha, by the way. She seems like a very smart person who has thought very deeply about the surface of these economic problems, but I question how many years or decades it may have been since she actually challenged the fundamentals, the principles that she was, or well, the lack of principles, really, the assumptions that she builds her arguments on. So this thread and a handful of, handful of her others are often sprinkled with uh, good examples of it. So I figured I'd cover it on the show. Shout out, by the way, to Bradley Rettler. Um, we, uh, we read his piece recently on the show, How to, uh, Another Way to Think About Bitcoin's Value, I think is what it's called. Uh, Bitcoin Magazine piece, really great episode. But I had not actually considered doing this on the show. I just kind of tweeted about it and made some remarks. But he suggested it to me in DM. You know, said there's a lot of people who might know or feel that this is wrong, but not, might not be able to articulate why. And covering it could be useful. I agree. That was a good idea. So that's what we're going to do. Shout out to Rettler for that. But before we do, let's thank our lovely sponsors for the podcast. 
We have swanbitcoin.com, the best way to save in Bitcoin. Automatic buys, no shit coins. You set it up once and it runs forever. I've literally been using them for over a year and I cannot fathom a reason why I would ever stop. It automatically buys every week and then automatically sends it to my cold storage. swanbitcoin.com slash guy will also help out the show. It is my referral link. You're supporting Bitcoin Audible. Then speaking of cold storage, we have Shift Crypto, the makers of the high security Bitcoin open source hardware wallet, the Bitbox. Security is their game and the Bitbox O2 is their claim to fame. Huge fan of the Bitbox. I got it right here on my desk. Actually, I'm watching a little bouncing screensaver right now because I I've never unplugged this thing. I'm very uh, uh, irresponsible about it. But you can, you can get your Bitbox digital vault and 5% off the price, uh, everything in your cart, actually, by using code GUY at checkout. Go straight to the site to check out their security goodies and the Bitbox at guyswan.com bitbox. And with that, let's go ahead and get into this Twitter thread by Real Natasha Che, and I have titled it Bitcoin's Naive Monetary Policy. Bitcoin fails as money because of its naive monetary policy. Many people think government printing too much is evil, so a fixed money supply must be good. The reality, a money that cannot expand would crush the economy and put us all in poverty. Here's why and how to fix it. To see this, we need to understand why monetary deflation and expanding economy do not go together. Let's simplify so it's easier to see. Say we have an economy with one product, the Twinkie, and one currency, the dollar. Price of one Twinkie equals one dollar. Alice, a Twinkie entrepreneur, hires Bob to help make Twinkies. Alice's company makes one Twinkie a year, so the company revenue is one dollar. Bob's salary is 50 cent, and Alice takes the other 50 cent. What happens when productivity goes up, a.k.a. the economy grows? When prices and wages are stable, Alice is always motivated to find better ways, read new technology to make Twinkies, read increase productivity. If the company manages to make two Twinkies instead of one with the same resources, Alice will make $1.50 instead of just 50 cent. $1 times two Twinkies minus the 50 cent wage cost of Bob equals $1.50. But if price quickly drops as productivity of Twinkies doubles, i.e. the Twinkie price deflates to 50 cent, Alice would still just make 50 cent after going through all the trouble to increase productivity. The revenue doesn't increase. Two Twinkies times 50 cent equals a dollar while wage cost is still 50 cent. Note, in our toy economy, there's only one product, so purchasing power of 50 cent is higher than before. In reality, the dollar is not just used to buy Twinkies, but a wide variety of other goods and services, so it's the amount of money earned that Alice cares about. Why would Alice even bother to improve productivity when she ends up still making 50 cent as she did before? You say, since price dropped, there's deflation, shouldn't the wage drop too? 
Why doesn't Alice pay a lower salary to Bob or do profit sharing so that wage adjusts with revenue? But Bob would tell you, wait, what? No effing way. A Twinkie company is a risky business. Bob didn't sign up to share that risk and he doesn't want to. Alice can experiment with new technologies however she wants. It's her company. Bob is just a hired gun who wants to get paid. Bob? She said she'd pay 50 cent. 50 cent is my right. Why are these corporations so evil? Employer-worker contract is an agreement about risk as much as about money exchange. Workers signed up to exchange labor for a more or less promised pay. That's why, in reality, wages are extremely difficult to adjust downward. Seasoned entrepreneurs would tell you to think carefully about raises. They're easy to give and hard to take back. What happens when companies need to make investments? Let's make our toy economy a bit more complex. Alice wants to find a better way to make Twinkies. To do so, she has to invest in R&D, research and development, and that's costly and risky. Alice goes to Mary to borrow 50 cent with a 20% interest rate. She invests the money in R&D and keeps her fingers crossed. Thank goodness she discovers a new way to double Twinkie-making productivity. Mind you, it can easily go the opposite way. She could have invested all with nothing to show for it. That's what risk is. If the price is stable, Alice now makes 90 cent. That's $1 times two Twinkies minus the 50 cent wage minus the 60 cent loan repayment equals 90 cent. That's great. She was only making 50 cent before. But what happens if price quickly drops from $1 to 50 cent as productivity doubles? Alice makes 50 cent times two Twinkies minus the 50 cent wage cost minus the 60 cent loan payment negative 10 cent. She's now royally screwed, even though the investment was supposedly a success. You say, if price drops, that means purchasing power of the money is up. So interest rate, denominated in dollars, should go down by the same degree. But Mary would tell you, no way. Her argument is the same as Bob's. Mary and Bob did not sign up to be the main risk taker of a venture. They only agreed to provide capital and labor in exchange for a relatively predictable return. It's Alice, the entrepreneur, who signed up to take risks with the prospect of hopefully capturing the gain of productivity growth. But if price quickly reflects productivity growth, it makes that impossible. You say, but things have gotten cheaper with technology progress. Look at how much the prices of TVs, computers, and smartphones have dropped. Yes, but that drop happens gradually. It allows the companies that invested in tech progress first to capture the gains before the product becomes a commodity. Plus, new products and services are invented every day to reset the price curve, and productivity growth is slower in some categories than in others. Money supply growth is keeping apace with overall productivity growth, so the price level of the aggregate economy stays stable. Because technology progress happens all the time and the economy has become more and more abundant, people take it for granted. Don't. Realize that for every little progress that happened, someone took the risk and invested to make it happen. They did so because a capitalistic economy with price stability 
provides powerful incentives to invest and innovate. When you have deflation, you drastically weaken those incentives and the economy stagnates. What happens if you have a money whose supply cannot expand or, God forbid, shrinks? The long-run detriment of inflation versus deflation. Inflation rate equals the money supply growth minus real GDP growth minus the money velocity growth. Money velocity fluctuates up and down and doesn't have a trend growth, i.e. it's roughly equal to zero. That means if real GDP grows, aka productivities increase, goods and services are more abundant, money supply needs to grow too. Otherwise, you have an inflation rate of less than zero, i.e. deflation. In our Twinkie economy, we initially make one Twinkie and money supply is $1. So the price of a Twinkie is $1. When Twinkie productivity doubles, money supply needs to double as well to keep the price of Twinkie at a dollar. If you fix the money supply, the price of a Twinkie drops to 50 cent. You screw Alice. If productivity stays the same, but you cut money supply by half, the price of the Twinkie also drops to 50 cent. Except in this case, not because of any action from Alice. Alice is like, what have I done to deserve this? Also note that deflation begets more deflation. Bitcoin has a fixed supply. If it is used as a currency, as the economy expands, prices of goods and services denominated in BTC drop. That encourages Bitcoin hoarding, as people expect it to be worth more tomorrow, which leads to more Bitcoin being taken out of circulation, which leads to the money supply shrinking further. Yes, with deflation, each Satoshi can buy you more stuff. But with investment and production incentives destroyed, you soon won't have more stuff to buy. You say, we can still have a currency with fixed supply like Bitcoin, we just need to entirely change how interest rates, wages, and prices are set. Yes, theoretically possible, but what for? Why would you ask the whole economy to bend backwards to fit the arbitrary tyranny of a currency when money is supposed to serve the economy, not the other way around? Just so that Bitcoin holders could see their asset appreciate? Give me a mother effing break. Stable prices, not persistent inflation or deflation, is a fundamental feature of any good money. Bitcoin has a place as a store of value asset in a new monetary paradigm, but it's unfit to be a currency and never will be. Any other layer one chain that aspires to become a dominant medium of exchange or unit of account should take heed of this. Money policy should be programmed in a way so that money supply will expand along with the volume of economic activities happening on the platform. There should also be a mechanism to accommodate cyclical change, lower money supply when the economy is running too hot, and increase money supply when it's in recession to help economy cope with volatility. These rules can be programmed so there's no subjective discretion or potential abuse like with a traditional central bank. Bitcoin is not a new economic paradigm. Programmable monetary policy is.
All right. So she shills her newsletter and, you know, follow me on Twitter, blah, 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 which you're free to. I will link to this thread if you want to. But we're going to do I'm going to do a guy's take on this and we're going to go through this piece by piece. And I'm going to talk about where she's right and where she is wrong. And then also where she conveniently treats two things as completely separate or different in her economic argument because it's the only way that it works when actually they are exactly the same thing. And she accidentally explains why her own argument doesn't work in this thread. Uh, it's going to be fun. Let's hit our sponsor for the show real fast and we will jump back in. You have got things to do. You've got life to take care of, work to finish, and so much to learn and deal with already. Two things that you do not want are another big job or thing you have to worry about on your table and someone else stealing the value of everything you already did. That is why I always advocate for an automated, simple savings plan with Swan Bitcoin. That is the solution. And just like Tasha explained in this thread, Bitcoin is an inflation-proof money. It has a fixed supply. It'll go up in value and you know, maybe it'll destroy the economy, but not your purchasing power. That might sound contradictory because it is, but we're not there yet. And nobody wants to stare at charts all day. When do I get in? When do I sell? Just buy and save over the long term. Focus on the things that matter in your life. While your Swan Bitcoin savings plan secures it behind an immutable monetary policy. Automatically buy every day, week or month, whatever works for you in whatever amount automatically withdraw it to your keys on a hardware wallet or other secure device of your choosing and have peace of mind. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy is my referral link and it's also a great help to this show if you use it. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy. Okay, now let me preface this by saying no hard feelings to Natasha here. Um, if I get a little uh, heated or insulty, I don't mean to, it's just, you know, sometimes hearing these ideas over and over and over again, even though they're directly contradicted by something we see in real life persistently, sometimes it's hard to censor. I'm going to try to be perfectly polite here. Now, I want to begin with a very simple truth. This is a claim that Bitcoin's monetary policy means that growth within the economy cannot occur. And all extrapolations and excuses and hypotheticals aside, Bitcoin has had this monetary policy for 12 years, and it has experienced staggering growth every year, including all of the Bitcoin businesses that have only taken Bitcoin all the way back to ones I was using back in 2012, None of these companies have had problems. None of this economy has been something that is detrimental or lacking of growth in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. Even in the last two years during a bear market and then subsequent growth that we've seen in the last year, uh, it's estimated to have had like a, I read an article from, I think it was a Coindesk thing that was trying to estimate the number of users interacting with the system. And it's like an 800% increase in the number of users. No industry or economy is growing as fast as Bitcoin is right now. 
It is absolutely blowing everything out of the water. This is why she feels compelled to talk about it and talk about how it can't work. So this supposed economic principle is demonstrated exactly nowhere right now in the most deflationary, the most hard monetary asset that we have to use as an example. In fact, it's not only like slightly contradictory, it's actually perfectly the opposite. It's like if I made a claim and made a very good logical argument about why if you wore these particular shoes, you are 100% going to lose as every race that you race in. But then you put on the shoes and in like a few weeks, you are the fastest person in the world. Now, this should really make someone think twice about the fundamental principles that they are starting from. Because it didn't turn out to be wrong, it turned out to be like horribly wrong. But even though I think that's essentially enough to, it's not a logical argument, right? Even though I think this is enough to prove that the argument is wrong, I'm not addressing any of the principles. And, you know, maybe this is a cheap shot. So we're going to actually address it on the on a level playing field from Natasha's assumption that we're starting here today. Everything is priced in Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. How why is it that this won't devolve into chaos? Now, just on the notion of the word naive, that Bitcoin has a naive monetary policy. I would say what is most naive in this entire argument is the idea that we're going to artificially manage the monetary policy and that if we screw with the price signals, we are going to get more accurate price signals. That is one of the fundamental arguments of this entire thing, that when the price signal says this has happened, we should then break the pricing mechanism to essentially hide that information. That's what deflation does, right? The reason the price falls, and this, she seems to have this backward in the entire argument. She keeps saying if price, if productivity doubles, then price is immediately half. It is because of the extra uh, supply on the market that the price is eventually pushed down. So deflation doesn't like just happen and then you have to have productivity catch up with it. It's because the economy grew that the price level falls. I mean, she says, quote, to see this, we need to understand why monetary deflation and expanding economy do not go together. They literally only happen at the same time. If a money supply is fixed and there is no growth or no increased productivity, prices don't fall. If you can't make more Twinkies with the same amount of resources, there's nothing to push the price down. There is no higher supply to push down the demand. It is only after Alice invests in that new mechanism to innovate and push production twice as in, at twice as efficient that the price then comes down. It is because of her growing productivity that the price falls and the value of the money increases at all. The only exception to this is during monetization of a good. We're talking about post unit of account here for a fixed money supply. But during monetization, when there are a million people outside of the Bitcoin economy and a million people inside of the Bitcoin economy and 100,000 people move from outside to inside, well, then they take their value with them into the economy. So then the value of it goes up, even though there's not technically 
more productivity, even though there is because there's 100,000 new units of labor and resources and the value and lives of all those people who have now joined the Bitcoin economy. But still, technically, it's not the same sort of growth. It's growth from outside to within the economy. But still, the price level is exactly what demonstrates how much that growth is. Like the, the, in, a, in a natural economy, the deflation of the money is exactly how we would figure out how much productivity there is and where it has been most concentrated in the economy. We wouldn't need the GDP metric at all, which is a garbage metric anyway, for like a hundred different reasons, which I've gone into on this show. I'll see if I can find an episode where I break it down. But in a fixed money economy, you would measure far more accurately the growth of the economic system as a whole in aggregate by the general falling of the price level. So if it ever, quote unquote, destroyed the economy, well, then prices would go back up. It's almost like it's a supply and demand curve. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm getting a little ahead of myself and, you know, no hate. Just I, I think that's a fundamental principle that should make sense to somebody who gets supply and demand and understands that money is a proxy for real resources. The only reason the value of the money increases is because the amount of goods, resources, and labor that that money can acquire grows, which means that to the contrary, monetary deflation and expanding economy do not go together. Yes, they do. They are one and the same thing. If the economy grows and is more productive and is more efficient, but the money supply doesn't, then does the value of money increase. Now, we're not talking about credit expansion here. We'll get to that in a second. That's a, different, that's a completely different environment because you're destroying money that you created out of thin air. But again, we'll get there. It's a different issue. Right now, we're just talking about deflation during a fixed money supply system. Okay, so let's actually address her example. So Alice is creating a, uh, creating a business to make Twinkies. Uh, there's a $1 economy, one Twinkie, a uh, Twinkie is a dollar. Cool. Totally with you there. She pays 50 cent to Bob to help make the Twinkie. She makes a 50 cent profit after selling the $1 Twinkie. Her costs are 50 cent. Her, uh, uh, her product is a dollar. She makes 50 cent. Now she says if the company expands and can uh, produce twice as many Twinkies, then Alice will make a dollar and 50 cent instead of just 50 cent because she sold two Twinkies for a dollar. Now here's where there's a big problem with the principles of the situation. We, in this little economy, where does that extra dollar come from? Who gets to eat the Twinkie when it's Bob and Alice that made the Twinkie? Again, money is just a proxy for resources here. It's a history. It's, it's a tally of what has been produced in the past. Why does somebody else have, somebody else who has produced nothing now have the capacity to buy all of the production in this little economy? Now, obviously, she's not like making a claim to this or saying that somebody else should have the purchasing power. And the analogy is just too simplified to take into account this issue. But it is an issue in consequence to this discussion is where does the extra dollar come from? Does it represent productivity in the past as a fixed supply of money would, which would require them to trade with Alice and Bob or participate in the creation of Twinkies since there's nothing else going on in this economy? 
Or why does somebody simply now have a whole dollar to buy up the entire world's supply of Twinkies without having contributed nothing to the production? Alice isn't the one in poverty here. Alice is the one who made a Twinkie and now has a Twinkie. So basically just keep that in mind for a second because we're going to come back to it. Right now it's not addressed at all and Natasha hasn't made an argument one way or the other so I'm not like rebutting anything at this point. But it definitely is important to the conversation and we'll, come, we'll circle back around to it. Now, her next tweet after laying out this little scenario. Quote, But if the price quickly drops as productivity of Twinkies double, i.e. the Twinkie price deflates to 50 cent, Alice would still make 50 cent after going through all the trouble to increase productivity. The revenue doesn't increase. Two Twinkies at 50 cent price equals a dollar, while the wage cost is still 50 cent. And her note, in our toy economy, there's only one product, so purchasing power of 50 cent is higher than before. In reality, the dollar is not used to just buy Twinkies, but a wide variety of other goods and services. So here's where she, she walks outside of her little economic experiment to make her principle work, but it actually doesn't work in her little experiment. And I'll, I'll explain why in just a second. It says, so it's the amount of money earned that Alice cares about. So here's the thing. Why does the price of Twinkies fall? It doesn't fall because suddenly people know the productivity of Twinkies have doubled. It doesn't fall until Alice sells too many Twinkies at a dollar. And really, she has a point in making the note about her little toy economy that doesn't work because you're by yourself. The only person with any buying power to actually buy a Twinkie is Bob, and he's only got 50 cents. So obviously, this analogy just kind of falls apart, but we're just trying to get at the principle. So let's take, you know, in her example, let's go with, you know, think about an entire set of different goods and services and other Twinkie manufacturers. The reason she innovates is because then she can sell a Twinkie, more Twinkies, for less, costing her less, at $1 until the supply of Twinkies is so great that it no longer can sustain the $1 price and the price starts to fall. And it specifically falls because her profit margin is higher. She is now making, just like Natasha said in the previous example, she's making $2 instead of $1 or a buck 50 profit instead of 50 cent. So what can she do? She can sell for 80 cent. She can underbid every Twinkie manufacturer in the country because she has higher productivity. And if they don't innovate to continually push out and price and pull their prices down, down to 79 cent, which means their profit margin gets higher and higher, their workers and their costs gets more and more productive, and they fight to underbid and be the one who is producing the most supply on the market, then they go out of business because other people are producing better and faster and more efficiently than they are. But it only happens. The price only falls. If it still takes the same amount of resources to produce the same amount of a good, the price doesn't fall. And you know, if we want to make the assumption that the price changes before the actual supply and demand is met, that it's, that it's the cart leading the horse instead of the horse leading the cart, then I can make the exact same argument in the reverse about inflation, that if you inflate the money supply and increase the cost of the good, 
then Alice won't be able to afford the new production to increase the supply and actually have the economy grow. I mean, that's essentially what we're saying here is that the price change happens before the change in productivity and growth and that, or, or what, the, the person who's in charge of the money supply growth is supposed to anticipate and know how much the growth has actually changed before prices adjust? I mean, that's the pretense of knowledge, right? It's only because the market actually tells us these things through the price that we know them. But, you know, she's actually got the better argument for why this doesn't play out like this, or at least a very simple summation of it. And that's, you go like, I don't know, like seven tweets down here. It says, oh, you say, but things are, have gotten cheaper with technology progress. Look at how much the prices of TVs, computers, and smartphones have dropped. Well, yes, but that drop happens gradually. It allows the companies that invested in tech progress first to capture the gains before the product becomes a commodity. That's deflation, yo. That is exactly what it is and how it manifests in the real world. Like, that's not, that's not even, like, related. And it's not, like, somewhat the same principle. Like, that is exactly what monetary deflation is. What we are looking at is a situation where even though the money has been inflated, the deflation in technological process outpaces it and the prices still fall. And they fall, why? Because they invested in technological process that makes it more efficient and more productive and therefore the increased supply and the increased alternatives and the explosion in the expansion of that economy and industry causes the price levels to fall across the industry. So we can't, what we just did really is make up a scenario in which it happens instantly all at once before you sell the product, and then we excuse that the reason the real world doesn't happen that way is because it happens gradually, and the companies actually get the money back after the tech progress before the product becomes quote-unquote a commodity. Okay, so your analogy doesn't work, and in the real world it works fine. I guess I agree with that, but the rest of the thread doesn't make any sense anymore. We now saw what actually happens with deflation in the real world, that the prices don't adjust instantly when you double pro productive capacity because you haven't pushed anything onto the market yet. You get to still, still sell the price or the, the new good at a price that you find profitable because you're setting, the, you're setting the price with a lower cost because you're more productive. And then the price slowly falls down as other people become more productive and the new technological advancement becomes ubiquitous throughout the economy. And who loses out? Everybody who doesn't innovate. Everybody who, you know, is still making newspapers and doesn't decide to even consider how to get information to people more efficiently. And therefore, they're using 10 times as many resources, hiring, wasting 10 times as many bobs on a job that doesn't actually... It's horribly inefficient and wasteful. So yeah, they go out of business. That's how the economy grows. That's how things get better. The shit that is a waste of resources stops being profitable and therefore is eradicated from the society. The economy gets more and more efficient. Innovation goes faster and faster. And technological progress, progress grows the economy, expands our productivity, and makes us all wealthier. If you want an example of this, just look at information technology. That is exactly what happens with deflation. We see exactly why it happens. And we see the whole process 
as to why it's obviously very profitable and incentivizes the hell out of innovation and increased productivity. And what's funny is that it's not even necessary, and, and we saw this in history, that this wasn't really the case unless there was a huge techn technological innovation in which an entirely old business model got disrupted and died away, in which it should. The entrepreneur that can't keep up with that, I'm sorry, that's what the entrepreneur does. They will have huge profits when they innovate and they are more productive, and they will have none or they will go out of business if they are wasteful, inefficient, and are not adopting the better technology within the economy, period. I, like That's not, like I feel sorry for Alice if she's not good at that, but Alice shouldn't be doing that. She should be standing with Bob making Twinkies while someone else does the innovating. And when we're talking about wages too, when we're talking about what we pay Bob, the technological innovation that made them twice as productive with the single worker of Bob is exactly why Bob can still get paid roughly the same wage. His labor is worth twice as much as long as he knows how to use the new technological innovation that produces Twinkies twice as fast. And human labor isn't the only input here. If we're talking about a Twinkie, we're also talking about baking, we're talking about the energy, we're talking about the ingredients, the sugar, and everything that goes into making the Twinkie, which all got cheaper because of the better technology and the better productivity of the economy. And when you look at a natural economy, you see the prices of the higher order goods the actual commodities, the, the, the raw materials and resources that go into things, those are the ones that price adjust first. So actually, Alice's costs will go down before the price of her good will go down because consumer prices are many layers from the higher order goods. It's a lower order good. They're actually the last to correct because they're at the end of the production process. None of this works out bad for Alice if she's a half-decent innovator. Bob is worth twice as much because of the innovation. And even going to Mary with the example of her borrowing money at 20% interest, she shouldn't borrow and use up scarce resources if she doesn't have something, an idea, or an innovation, or a production that is valuable enough to pay for that interest rate, whatever the interest rate is. The idea that we should just waste all of our like everything is scarce that's why we have a price system to begin with the idea that we should just throw loans arbitrarily at everything and print money out of thin air and have all prices skyrocketing and everybody fighting over scarce resources to just see if we can make more twinkies when we don't know if the market actually needs more twinkies and we're just going to zero percent interest rate across the board is absolutely insane it's ridiculous you want actual pushback. If nobody actually cares about Twinkies, you don't want people investing in more innovative ways to make Twinkies when we preciously need more hospitals or medical equipment or whatever it is at a far higher degree and they actually can sustain or pay for the 20% interest rate. The interest rate is the great filter to make sure that we aren't wasting all of our resources on stupid shit. <sighs> okay. Like I said, I get a little heated. I'll, I'll get heated from time to time. We'll reel it in for a second. But basically, her principle here, what she, the argument she's trying to make is that, quote, when you have deflation, you drastically weaken the incentives to, well, those incentives, but the incentives to produce, invest, and innovate, and the economy stagnates. No, you don't. It does not and never has. The Industrial Revolution happened while we are on a gold standard. 
every single uh, economic downturn and huge boom and bust cycle that you can go find in history happened because of credit expansion. It is explicitly because of the mismanagement and fraudulence in, inherent to a, a managed elastic money supply that the economy got overheated and then there was a terrible turnaround. And this is by, by no means whatsoever. Our current situation is anything but an uh, advertisement for an elastic money supply. It's exactly what happens when you get a manager of the economy. The naivety here, to circle back around to the issue I brought up before, is who gets the dollars and who gets to set the policy? That we can have some monetary masters that just understand everything or some program that's just going to know that the economy is overheated or not, which is just, it just it's a pretense of knowledge. How are you going to know without the price signal to tell you? Without a fixed, a fixed money supply simply gives you accurate prices about the change in the resources. It's the, the nominal amount is irrelevant. The amount of the numbers we have to measure the value that we have created is, has nothing to do with the actual ability to create that value in the first place. It is irrelevant. The very idea is simply that it remains consistent so that we can measure that value against the past. It is as irrelevant as saying whether I measure my house in inches or feet does not affect how big I can build the house. Money is a representation of goods. It is a record of who has produced that extra productivity and those extra resources in the economy. That is exactly what enables us to get those goods and resources for less in the future. Who has contributed realistically and therefore who is rewarded from doing it? The people who save. The people who saved resources. If you produced more than you consumed, you were rewarded from the falling in the price level. Why? Because you were the reason the price level fell. And she sums up her argument here. She says, Bitcoin, like applying all this back to Bitcoin, she says, Bitcoin has a fixed supply. If it's used as a currency, as the economy expands, prices of goods and services denominated in Bitcoin drop. That encourages Bitcoin hoarding as people expect it to be worth more tomorrow, which leads to more Bitcoin taken out of circulation, the money supply shrinks further. Yes, with deflation, each Satoshi can buy you more stuff, but with investment and production incentives destroyed, you soon won't have more stuff to buy. These are 100% contradictory. If you don't have more stuff to buy, the value of the money doesn't go up. The way you take Bitcoin out of circulation is by producing goods into the economy so that you can save the money instead. Again, money is a record of things done in the past. If you are pulling money out of circulation, the way, the only way to do that in a fixed sound money economy is to produce resources into the economy so that you can trade it for money. The only way that the money supply can shrink in regards to what's available on the market is that the resource supply is growing. Taking Bitcoin out of circulation fundamentally means 
putting resources into circulation. The only times that is not true are when we are talking about counterfeiting the money supply, inflating it arbitrarily because you're the master, or stealing. And all three of those are the same thing, stealing. And no, it's not good for the economy. It's good for the thief, period. Now, everything up to here was just an economic argument. She lays out a theory um, that she contradicts a few times, but you know, nonetheless, if we take her presumptions that somehow technological progress in TVs and computers aren't real deflation, then okay, we'll, we'll pretend your hypothetical is the real world. Now, this is how she ends this. Quote, You say we can still have a currency with fixed supply like Bitcoin. We just need to entirely change how interest rates, wages, and prices are set. Yes, they should be set by the market. Of course, 100% we should do that. We should stop having price controls. We should stop having monetary authorities that arbitrarily set the price and think they can decide better than the economy. We should do the same, th same reason we shouldn't price control bread. We shouldn't price control Natasha's services. It's stupid, it's evil, and it shouldn't exist. Yes, we should change those things. The interest, rates, the interest rate is the most important fucking price in the whole economy. It is the price of time. Using resources today instead of tomorrow it is absolutely critical that the price is set by the market if it is manipulated it will create distortions it will create credit expansions today which will look like a big great boom and natasha will probably talk about how great it is that the economy can grow and then it will end in a subsequent collapse or a further manipulation of the interest rate to a stupid degree and we'll have a hundred trillion dollars in debts and liabilities that we can never ever ever pay for and we will all put our heads in the sand and pretend like this is all okay because we have an elastic money supply and we can rob the producers of the world indefinitely and all the consumers and debtors will just be bailed out. And we'll be so naive as to think we can create the greatest power in an economic system ever, the ability to manipulate it and consume resources indefinitely without ever contributing back to it, and think that this won't have consequences. Okay, getting heated again. This, uh, this little sum up here at the end just got to me. I literally barely made it anywhere through this. Okay, so let me start back. You say we could still have a currency with fixed supply like Bitcoin. We just need to entirely change how interest rates, wages, and prices are set. We just need a market. Yes, theoretically possible. But what for? Why would you ask the whole economy to bend backwards to fit the arbitrary tyranny of a currency when money is supposed to serve the economy and not the other way around? just so that Bitcoin holders could see their asset appreciate? Give me a motherfucking break. The arbitrary tyranny of a currency. I'm sorry, Natasha. What Bitcoiners stole from you? Anything at all? One thing. Name it. What tyranny exactly in a currency that people are freely choosing to use? I can see the tyranny in one in which you are forced to use, where someone prints $6 trillion arbitrarily and just hands it out to their corporate buddies, bails out a bunch of irresponsible banks. Do you even know what $6 trillion is? The average U.S. citizen who makes per capita more than just about anybody else in the world, as far as I know, makes $2 million in their lifetime. 
$2 million is their influence over the free market. That is the value. That is the value that influences and moves the world forward based on their dreams, their skills, their hopes, how they want to build a family, where they make their trade-offs, the blood, sweat, and tears of their entire life. Everything that they do and think and want to have influence in this world exists in that $2 million. When you print $6 trillion arbitrarily to just quote-unquote correct something that the government decides to ne needs to be corrected, you delete 3 million people from existence in the economic system. It is if nothing they did ever mattered. That sounds like fucking tyranny of a currency to me. And guess what? You don't have to invest in it. You don't have to use Bitcoin, but you can suck it if you think you're going to come fix it and turn it back into that. We are exiting and you can do whatever you want. You choose whatever currency you want to use and I will choose mine. I will use Bitcoin and you can keep using your poverty paper. We can debate on Twitter. We can have conversations about it. Oh, oh how deflation is so terrible while Bitcoin skyrockets and the industry and economy around it literally grows so fast it's ripping people's faces off. But you are free to insist that this is a negative development and it is bad for innovation. Or maybe it all stagnates. Maybe the innovation in the Bitcoin economy was just waiting for the right moment to destroy all the incentives and it all halts. It all just goes to shit. Well, good news. Basic supply and demand make it perfectly clear. This means the value of the money will not increase. And everybody will get cold feet and exit back to the politically manipulated, price-controlled garbage that we call the dollar. I am perfectly happy to take that risk. And, you know, I'm sorry for getting heated. I told you I would. I'm sure, I'm sure Natasha is a perfectly kind individual. I mean, no ill will here. She probably cut this off like 30 minutes ago, so she's, she's not listening anyway. But just in case, you're free to use whatever money you want. I will always extend that freedom to you. But understand, we aren't asking permission here. We have the right to make and use whatever money we wish. We are running the rules. We are the master of this system, and I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm not asking for my rights to do this. I'm living by them because they are mine. I have chosen to exit the bullshit system that has robbed an entire generation of their livelihoods and economic progress that has propped up a disgustingly evil and perpetual war machine, bailed out trillions in corporate irresponsibility, fraud, and blatant corruption, all made possible 100% by the arbitrary expansion of credit and the issuance of money by the masters of the monetary policy. Now, for some reason, it doesn't seem to be that you've factored in that incentive at all in your model. And to be perfectly honest, that's the only one I'm really worried about right now. I think we can handle the innovation and productivity side of things. Now, she ends this whole thread with a line, Bitcoin is not a new economic paradigm. Programmable monetary policy is. I gotta say, there's nothing interesting about programmable monetary policy. The reason Bitcoin is an economic innovation, it's an economic revolution, 
or a new economic paradigm, as she says it is not, is because of the lack of a trusted third party, is because of an immutable monetary policy that is not arbitrarily changed by the whims of some group of people who decide that they know better than the entire collective output of every individual assessment in the economic system. You can program a bad monetary policy all day. You can program, I mean, you could, you could automate exactly what the Fed does right now. Doesn't change anything. It's not new. That's fintech. That's, that's taking a bank and making a banking app. You didn't solve anything. You didn't change anything. That's not even new. Then all we've done is turn an analog problem into a digital problem. The innovation of Bitcoin is that there's nothing anybody could do about it. There simply is a fixed money supply. And it will continue to be there. And there's no shutting it off and there's no changing it. And we're going to see exactly what that results in. So far, it appears to be nothing whatever close to incentives not to produce and a lack of innovation. In fact, just the opposite. And that is exactly what taking Bitcoin out of circulation means. It means producing more and consuming less. And that's good news, right? We should be thrilled if the theory turns out to be wrong. And you know, Tasha did a pretty decent job laying out this theory. She's just, in my opinion, fundamentally wrong about a couple of the core principles as to what money is, what resources are, what it means to remove money from society in a fixed monetary society or system. And when you start from wrong assumptions, well then yeah, you build off on top of that, you end up with wrong uh, conclusions. I don't know. Anyway, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, ridiculous rant of an episode. To get a much deeper dive on the idea of why having a default wage increase rather than a default wage decrease is actually wonderful for Bob, why hoarding money in general is actually great for the economy, and why if that was true that this was a problem, the flip side would be just as much of a problem that if you inflate the currency, everybody's just going to hoard resources and commodities. Um, which is way worse than people hoarding money because money isn't a resource. You don't eat it. I would direct you to Guys Take 48, but hoarding money is bad for the economy. That's the name of the episode. I tried to cram all of the ideas around that concept into a single episode to break it down for anybody who's interested. A huge thank you. A thank you to Natasha for doing this thread and hopefully being okay with my angry rant after uh, reading it on the show. No hard feelings. And a huge thank you to our sponsors. Swan Bitcoin, the savings plan for the true Bitcoiner, and then Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2, the digital, the secure open source digital vault for your Bitcoin keys. These are both amazing companies and products that have done wonders for the Bitcoin space and they keep this show alive. They keep these lights on and this uh, computer recording. So uh, don't forget to thank them and check them out at guyswan.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am out. Until next time, take it easy, guys.
This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.